Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy. I'm your host, Paula Jenkins. I invite you to join me as we explore how inspiring people have chosen joy in their lives and what they have to share with us about how to jumpstart joy in the world. Plus, how do we follow our own hearts, find work that lights us up while mindfully noticing the role that joy plays in our own journey. Welcome to episode 58. I'm Paula Jenkins, a life and career coach and host of Jumpstart Your Joy. Today, I have an interview with special guest, Michelle McQuaid, who is joining me to talk about the neuroscience behind positive psychology. It's a fast-paced interview that I know you're just going to love. First, I want to give you a warm welcome and say thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear and you want to subscribe, Jumpstart Your Joy is on all the major podcasting syndication spots. So that's iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Player FM. And if you'll search for Jumpstart Your Joy, you can subscribe at any of those places. So if you're there and hitting subscribe, please leave a review. I love hearing from you guys. If you want to follow along, and this is a really fast-paced show, you can head over to the website at jumpstartyourjoy.com slash episode 58. I'll have a downloadable copy of my notes so that you can follow along because Michelle and I get moving and I had to go back and listen several times myself to pick up everything that she had to say. So that's jumpstartyourjoy.com slash episode 58. Uh, the announcement for this week is if you are looking to start a podcast of your own, I want to invite you to come join me for my own seven-week podcasting boot camp, which is called Jumpstart Your Podcast. Uh, there's still room in the class, and you can sign up by going to jumpstartyourpodcast.com. This is a really great way to get a handle on the basics and meet some other new podcasters who will be launching their show around the same time that you are, which ideally, if you get through all of the material, will be by the end of the year. There are live calls as a part of this class and a private Facebook group where we all can chat each day and check in and see how things are going with each other. If you want to join, I want to give you a very special deal for being in the audience. If you use the code JUMPSTART, one word, you'll get $20 off. So that's all caps JUMPSTART, and you can use that over at jumpstartyourpodcast.com. And now for the interview with Michelle McQuaid, this is one fast-paced and enjoyable conversation. I was jotting down notes as we talked and came away with so much actionable goodness. I just love how we, how we got to talk about how each of us is wired for novelty, how your interests cycle through seven to ten year phases, how you can flourish in hard times, what grit is, and what failure teaches us. It's an uplifting, fun, and full of zest type of a conversation. And so here's the interview with Michelle McQuaid. Well, welcome today. We have Michelle McQuaid. Uh, and uh, welcome to the show. <laughs> Would you like to tell us a little bit about what you loved most as a child or in school? What were some of your early sparks of joy? 
Yeah, well, one of the things that my younger sister still ribs me for doing today is having made her play rounds and rounds of school when we were children. It wasn't enough to just go to school. When we came home, I made her go to my school, and, of course, I was always the teacher. Um, and that probably wasn't too surprising. I come from a long line of teachers. My mother was a teacher. My grandmother was a teacher. My great-grandmother was a teacher. <laughs> but despite playing those hours and hours of school as children, I swore I was never going to become a teacher. But that was absolutely what lit me up, and it's taken I think about 30 years of my life to realize that was what I was meant to be doing <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny the way that can come back around and like what brought you joy as a child kind of comes back into play when you're older I think that's so true and, and I think often when we're a bit lost as adults we forget to look back to those moments but I think instinctively we actually know what brings us joy. We're wired to feel joyful and happy uh, but we often miss the clues and so I think looking back to kind of what brought you joy in your childhood is a great way of you struggling to figure out you know well, what might do that again for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah yeah that's interesting because that was kind of one of the what one of the stepping stones for me was an exercise early on in self-discovery, which was looking back at the things that like where you felt most in the zone or I mean, joy would be kind of another word for that. But it really led me, even if it was a little bit through the daisy chain of events, like it was very interesting the way it's led me back home. Um, so would you like to explain what it is that you do today? Yeah, well, so I figured out I was actually a teacher, but I had to figure out what I wanted to teach. You know, my mother was a home economics teacher, my grandmother was a kindergarten teacher, my great-grandmother was a music teacher, and I knew I didn't want to teach in the traditional way in a school setting. And so I think that was really what kind of, you know, rocketed me into very different directions. Um, once I figured out what it was I wanted to teach, for me that was well-being and the science of positive psychology, which looks at how do we flourish as human beings, and neuroscience as well. How do we work with our brains rather than against them? And so these days I get to go into workplaces. Um, I do do some work in schools as well, universities and the like, and I try to fuse those things together. So how do we use the latest research about what we're learning in terms of how we're wired to be at our best in the world, to perform at our best, to be more joyful and happy on a more consistent basis. But how do you put that into really small, practical things that people can fit into very busy lives? And for me, it has to have that second part. It's not enough to just teach you the science. I'm happy doing that. But a good day for me is when I can help you make a bit of change with it. And that's what I get to do all over the world. That is very cool. (laughs) It sounds like it's a really nice kind of marriage of more than one base interest, which is always kind of a cool place to play. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for me, I'm someone who loves learning new things. I'm very high in creativity, so coming up with new ways to put it together. Uh, So it keeps fueling those opportunities for new learning, new practices, rather than perhaps getting a little stale. Yeah, uh, yeah. One thing I've discovered and then two years later going, I have to teach one more workshop on this topic. Uh, You know, the joy is completely gone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's so interesting because, I mean, uh, there's definitely kind of a – what a field of thought or whatever around being multi-passionate which is I don't know if that's a word that's familiar to you yeah but it sounds like you you probably are one and and leverage those many interests into this kind of new fusion of things which is so cool 
Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the other things we've learned about our brains is they're wired for novelty. Um, we are wired to keep evolving and learning new things. And again, I think often as adults, we underestimate it. As kids, we know it intuitively. But as adults, we kind of get to that point where we're like, oh, I just need to get into my groove. I just need to be steady and stable in this. And one of the other things we are wired to do is to adapt to both the good things and almost all the bad things that happen in our lives. And it's why the thrill of victory never lasts as long as we think it will, but also <laughs> Also why the pain of defeat never tends to last as long as we think it will. And so, you know, for me, one of the challenges I had in maintaining joy consistently before I started understanding that there was nothing wrong with me when I became a bit bored or restless about things that had previously brought me joy, it was just that I had adapted to those things and it was time to inject a bit more novelty or try a different way to do it or play with a different piece of uh, content or learning or things like that. So we are wired for growth um, and I think a big part of maintaining our joy is continuing to grow forward rather than letting ourselves plateau and get stuck or in a rush or become a bit bored with our lives. Mm. There's a lot of goodness right there that, yeah, like, and it helps, uh, sorry, it also helps explain a little bit like why we get restless. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about if somebody's feeling restless, like how do you jump into what's novel, but also what might be fulfilling? Yeah, one of the pieces that makes a big difference for a lot of the female leaders that I coach in particular, but it's true of men and women, is we don't understand that we have these constant mastery curves that we're climbing uh, whenever we're building skill or expertise in any area. And so, you know, for many of us, you know, we, we leave school or we leave college or university and we start climbing that mastery curve in our first job and often talk about that sort of first six months to two-year period as your white-knuckle stage, you know, <laughs> you're hanging on for dear life, you're not sure you can pull it off you think you're going in the right direction but you don't yet perhaps have the skills the experience the networks the resources to make climbing that part of the curve really joyful and so I think a big part when we're climbing new mastery curves is just give ourselves the permission to learn and go I'm in that white knuckle phase it's going to be okay then we tend to hit that middle part of the mastery curve where we we are we're in that state of flow in the zone one with the music things feel more joyful they're coming together we've got that level of mastery where we can really start to enjoy uh, the things that we're doing. But then what tends to happen somewhere for many of us around the 7 to 10 year mark is the top of that mastery curve flattens out. So you almost think of it as like a, a big letter S that you're climbing backwards. And mm. as that mastery curve flattens out, that's often where we start to feel a little bored, a little restless, a bit stuck in a rut, for example. And we start to think, oh my God, what's wrong with us? <laughs> like, you know, I've got all of this. Why can't I be grateful and enjoy it? Why have I lost the joy for this kind of work that once was really engaging for me? And there's nothing wrong with you. It's just that you've adapted and you're at the top of the mastery curve. And so it's time to figure out, well, what's the next mastery curve to climb? Now, sometimes we jump off the mastery curve entirely and have a complete change in our work or our passions or our hobbies and start an entirely new mastery curve. Sometimes we find the next level of that mastery curve. You know, how do we now fuse perhaps the expertise we had? So for me, that was, you know, branding and marketing and public relations was the first career mastery curve that I climbed. And then when I decided to get more interested in human behavior and how our brains worked and how we bring out the best in people in workplaces, I was able to still build on all of that, all those great communication skills I'd figured out and how to share things into the world, but I started fusing it with a whole new knowledge base that I could bring to that. So just being aware, number one, we're always climbing these mastery curves. Number two, where are you on your own curve? And just give yourself some permission that it's okay wherever you are in that, it's okay. And if you are coming sort of towards that seven to ten 
seeing your mark on your mastery curve, maybe start thinking a little bit ahead of time before it flattens too much about, oh, where would I like to take this next? Or is there a new area of mastery? And it doesn't always have to be our careers. We might start a new mastery curve as parents, or we might start a new career, a new mastery curve of learning an instrument or a language or a different hobby or passion. But we are wired to learn and grow. And when we're not, it really sucks the joy from our lives. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, and I can relate completely because I, I I don't know, at least in my own trajectory, and we can use me as an example, I was a project manager for a really long time. And yeah, around that like seven year, it started to get a little like, what is this? And then by 10, I was like, I got to get out. Yeah, Um, yeah. And, and I think the hard part is when you don't really see what is next, or you don't have I mean, if somebody's listening now, they have that awareness. But, like, how do you suggest people get curious about, um, you know, where do you find the next thing? And even if it feels hard, where would you look? I think this is such an important question because, again, we're not generally taught about how to fan (laughs) the flames of our interests. We're often told, follow your heart, go and live your dreams. Everything will be great if you do that. But for many of us, we're kind of sitting there waiting for that moment of inspiration to strike us from the sky. (laughs) Ah, This is my life's purpose and this is what I'm meant to do. And, of course, it's so rarely ever that way. And and researchers have found that, you know, even for those who have found what's our feeling of purpose, what gives us meaning, uh, what lights us up with joy in our life, that is really ever been a bolt from the blue. Instead, what tends to happen in the process of developing our interest is something begins to capture our attention. So when I was uh, first getting interested in the field of positive psychology, uh, I was at a stage in my job, I was the global brand director for PricewaterhouseCoopers. We were living in New York, thought it was going to be the job of my dreams, was the city my dreams, my family were in good health uh, and happy and, you know, life was great on paper, but I was struggling to find the energy to show up every day to work. And again, I I'd hit the top of my mastery curve. I just didn't understand that was what had happened. And to be honest, I was dragging my feet into work each day and just going, well, maybe this is what being a grown-up is all about. Maybe I should adjust my expectation here around the joy and happiness, you know, we think we're meant to feel. And I was sitting on our couch one night after work in that kind of of end-of-day slump, eating Mm -hmm. my dinner out of a takeaway container, uh, watching John Stewart. (laughs) And um, John Stewart was interviewing this professor from Harvard. And he was interviewing this professor because his course had become the most popular popular course on campus at uh, Harvard Business School and it was the first time anything was more popular than economics and the course this gentleman was teaching was positive psychology and I kind of remember like sitting upright on the couch in that moment and going what there's a science to happiness there's a science to human flourishing why had nobody told me before (laughs) Um, and so in that moment my interest was sparked yeah and so often interest gets sparked in little moments like that we come across a piece of information or content or we meet someone and it kind of fires up a curiosity in us but we often don't realize that at that moment interest has been sparked and that spark needs a bit of fanning in order to turn it into a flame now for many of us when we accidentally travel this path but we could do it much more intentionally those interests need some air just like a fire does in order to really um, become a flame and so for me the next day I went this uh, professor Telben Shahar had written a book recently called happier I went and grabbed the book I think first thing 
the next morning at Barnes and Nobles and devoured it. That led me to another book by the founder of the field, Professor Martin Seligman, on authentic happiness. I had a girlfriend visiting from Australia at the time and all I could do was talk her ear off this positive psychology thing I'd found and she said to me, well, why don't you go and do a master's in positive psychology? So then I went and did my master's in positive psychology. So that, that um, spark got fanned and they tend to get fanned by us uh, reading and learning more things about that interest by talking to other people about our interest and when they respond positively to it, it kind of, again, fans that flame even bigger by getting involved in groups or networks that share that interest. You know, again, sort of, you know, fans that flame to more and more to a point there where we start to go, okay, I really want to find ways to do more of this every day. And it's often quite a selfish endeavour at the start, but what happens over time is we see the joy it brings us, we want to pay it forward to other people and that's where an interest will often turn into a real sense of purpose and passion where we take that initial interest for ourselves and start to look at ways it could help other people as well. So think back again to kids, what sparked you? Notice when your attention wanders, where does it tend to go? If you could read anything of your own choice, what is it you like to read? Um, who are the kind of people that you love to hang out with? Or what are the great conversations you've had where somebody said something that's just really stuck with you? And then give yourself some permission to fan the flames of that interest and see where it goes. Sometimes it'll burst into a flame. Sometimes it kind of flickers a bit and then it dies out and it might need some time before it ever comes back or it never quite does. But just know that there's a process to cultivating interest. It rarely happens as a bolt of lightning, um, but it does happen if you show up and do the work with it. Mm, yeah. Well, and isn't it, I love that you're speaking about some of that, that pre-work. Um, there's, there's some beautiful things in there about how your attention gets grabbed by certain things. And you probably don't even know how or why this thing is interesting to you. But I love that you're saying, especially if you're kind of in that seven to 10 year range and you're feeling some dullness elsewhere, like, well, maybe it's time to get curious. Um, Absolutely. And, and time to play, you know, just pick yeah. up different things and notice what grabs you. And it's okay if it doesn't, put it down. That's not the thing for you. Find the next one. But there's is, I think, in that sort of seven to eight year mark, it's a great time to kind of go on an interest adventure <laughs> and just give yourself some permission to go, you know what, this year I'm just going to dive into the world and see what grabs my attention. And I think one of the important things and the reason I use the word play around this in particular is that part of playing is to play with no real sense of purpose for the outcome. And that means that we can hold it a lot more lightly instead of going, oh God, yeah, I dived into that area of interest and oh, it really didn't light me up and I'm such a failure about this, I'm never going to find what interests me. When we play with it, it gives us some permission to go, okay, I'm just going to check this out for a bit. I'm going to turn around, look at it from different angles, maybe talk to a few people. No, that didn't do it for me. Okay, well, what's the next thing I can play with? So again, I think that kind of giving ourselves some permission to go on interest adventures and just see what really starts to light us up and know that in that process it will find us and we will find it, but we need to play with it in order to get there rather than waiting for the bolt of lightning from the skies. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And it's also it's hard because I think that's so different than what we're often taught in school, which is there is a path and there's, you know, you, you should specialize in something. And like there's all those rules, but rules rarely say, at least, you know, in, in the United States, school systems are not necessarily built up for people to follow a creative path. And I think that's where a lot of creative. Well, and everyone's so creative and we don't get to play with that when we're in school. So then we get out and we're trying to follow a path and then all of a sudden it doesn't fit after a certain amount of time and then what's next? Yeah. <laughs> 
So I think that's so true. And often that path is laid out to be very linear and upward. Yeah. You know, one thing leads to the next thing leads to the next thing. And yet the reality in my experience, and I think this is true for all of us when we actually look at the paths that bring us true joy, is they're windy. You know, they, mm-hmm. they curl around, they go back, they go off to the side, they go up for a bit and they curl back again. And that that's okay. I think part of where we strip the joy from this process for us is we think it has to be one way and we think it has to be a straight upward trajectory. And the reality is for most of us, it is so rarely that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's powerful. I love that you're, that that's part of what your message is about too, is that this is not a linear path and that you're going to re, well, re-explore and then almost redefine yourself several times in a lifetime. Absolutely. Well, everything in our body is built to pulse. So if you think mm-hmm. about heartbeat and things like that, you know, blood pressure, we, we are entities that pulse, you know. That's how we how we breathe. It's how we survive. It's what we're wired again to do. And yet again, I think in our lives, somehow we think it's this straight line that's just always going up to better things, when actually I think our lives are more like heartbeats most of the time. You know, we're experiencing those natural highs and lows that we all have. And often where we get ourselves unhappy or we strip the joy from what we're doing is that when we're experiencing a low, we somehow think something's gone wrong or we've made a mistake or we've misstepped and there's that real fear about, oh my goodness, can I get myself back up out of this again? But when we realize that actually our lives, like every other part of us and every other living system does as well, pulses, then those lows or the things that take us off the path at times don't become so scary. Um, And I think a big part for me through the positive psychology work in particular was giving myself some permission to go, every life has highs and lows. That's part of being human. And the reason we have the highs and lows is it's part of our learning process. And so rather than being on the highs and being fearful of, oh my goodness, how long is this going to last and what happens if it drops out from under me and how will I recover, which really kind of sucks the joy out of the high, (laughs) and rather than being worried about in the low of, oh my goodness, where am I going to hit the bottom, can I get back out out the other side, again, when we give ourselves some permission to go, it's okay, I'm, I'm pulsing just like every other living system on this planet and I have the knowledge and the skills and the support around me where incredibly resourceful creatures to be able to pulse through that as long as I've got a bit of awareness some self-compassion as I go and some self-care to navigate that and again I think a big part is not holding the outcomes so tightly but perhaps instead really valuing the learning and the growth that we get both in those moments where everything's coming together and working beautifully in our lives but also in those moments where things aren't and we know we've all had the experience that some of those most challenging lower moments of life is where our greatest growth has occurred well and I, I i love what you're saying there what we don't always make room or appreciate some of the ebb and flow pieces of life and so there's that judgment that gets layered on of like you're saying both being fearful of what happens when this goes away but also then judging ourselves when it actually does go away when of course whatever it is is going to is going to bottom out at some point or <laughs> turn or change and like nothing is permanent Nothing's permanent. And again, we, you know, if you think about how we've evolved as a species, we are wired to evolve. And that means we are wired to constantly be challenging ourselves through change and adapting to change and learning to master change. And so, again, I think sometimes we confuse ourselves through schooling systems, through the way that we're raised, through society and the messages that we get, that somehow we're always meant to be on this upward trajectory and life's meant to be getting better and better and better all the time. And the reality 
reality is really if you talk to anybody in an, uh, in an honest space about the life that they've lived, we, we all pulse. You know, when I was doing this work uh, and I've been playing in this space for nearly a decade, um, about three years ago, I would say, yep, I was consistently flourishing. So if we think about this as a continuum, at one end, some of us are flailing and, and that's where we're really in that state of depression and anxiety and feeling overwhelmed and life is really hard. Um, most of us, though, sit in the state of functioning. We're getting by. We're, we're doing okay. But if a real challenge comes along, and sometimes even a small challenge, can not kind of knock us on our bottoms. And we're, you know, it takes a real effort to get back up. And we're maybe lacking some of that energy and joy for life we would hope that we had. But when we're flourishing, we're feeling good and we're functioning effectively on a pretty consistent basis. It doesn't mean we're up and happy and joyful all day, every day. But it means that we're feeling like we can be in that state more of the time than not. And so, you know, playing with all the science and the practices and doing the work that I love, you know, seven years ago, I'd say I was absolutely in that consistently flourishing state and man, life was joyful and good. Um, and then life happened, you know, as it does to all of us. Uh, my dad was diagnosed with melanoma cancer. He was given a very short time to live. Um, I'm the eldest child and my parents are divorced. So I, you know, ended up with the carekeeping role for him. Um, I have very complicated relationships with some younger siblings and suddenly we were all thrown back together to navigate this process and life went from flourishing to borderline flailing I think in almost a week um, but that was okay you know at that moment with all that was happening through that process and then as he passed away the natural grief cycle that followed flourishing in that moment for me wasn't the most healthy response or the right thing there was a lot of emotions going on a lot of fear that was being navigated and worked through and, and to do that I tried to be mindful about okay I was functioning I was getting by I was watching was I heading back to flailing in which case did I make sure I had the right care and support around me you know to nurture me back through that process and I remember after my dad passed thinking okay I'll give myself three months and I'm just just going to surrender to the functioning you know I'm going to make sure I'm still eating well and sleeping and exercising that'll be my monitoring cues if I've gone to flailing um, but I'm just going to give myself permission to function as I work through this and popping my head up at about three months in and going yeah I might need another three months of that <laughs> I think even at six months it was the same thing and about nine months through that process starting to go actually I'm feeling better and I can now start to put the pieces of my life back into a place where I can more consistently flourish and that feels like the healthy thing to do. So I think there's a, a self-awareness here, mm -hmm. a self-compassion, a gentleness not to beat ourselves up for the things we feel we're lacking in or missing and some self-care to understand how we look after ourselves both in the highs and the lows of life so mm -hmm. that we can really savour and learn and take from those good and bad experiences the learning that we need. Yeah, and there's a depth there. Thank you also for sharing a personal story. I'm sorry to, to hear about your father passing. Um, Thank you. There's a depth in there, too, that I feel is often, well, at least at the surface, missing on what many people think of when they think of positive psychology. Because, I, I mean, in my own experience, that, that term sometimes seems very simplified, meaning mm -hmm. if you're just repeating, you know, positive affirmations somehow, this will what help you turn your life around and then you will, um, I don't, I don't even know, like somehow materialize some of these things, the thoughts that you've been having, but 
what I'm hearing, <laughs> and I don't know. Magically make of... it all go away. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it's a really common confusion, and actually the Fields founder, Martin Seligman, says if he had one wish, it was that he called it something different. Um, <laughs> and and I, I think there's a really common, there's a confusion that this is positive thinking, so we're yeah. only going to think about good things and we're going to ignore the bad, and nothing could be further from the truth. When you scratch the research of any of the positive psychology, it's really looking at the whole experience of life and, you know, how do we feel well more consistently through it? But recognizing there are moments when feeling well and being healthy is actually leaning into some of those negative emotions and those challenging experiences and just allowing ourselves to be fully present in there without that fear that we're going to lose ourselves. I think one of the other common myths, and and you must find this too, talking about joy a lot, is that when we talk about joy or happiness or flourishing, that that's going to be the guarantee all the time. You're Mm -hmm. never going to have a moment of pain. You're never going to have a downer. And I think the fear, the challenge with that is the first moment people strike those things are oh well that doesn't work that's you know (laughs) and because it's completely unrealistic if we were joyful all the time if we were happy all the time if we were up all the time then we would miss out on the opposite experience which allows us to know what joy is (laughs) so we can only define what joy is by the moments when we don't have joy and it's missing (laughs) and we know we want to get back to that space Um, so yeah for for me one of the things I really love about positive psychology and look I, I think you know over the coming years it will simply all just come back into psychology and neuroscience and how we live our best lives kind of conversations you know for me the richness in there is how do I lean into every part of life and really show up for the experience this is and as I do that how do I more consistently flourish than function or flail but in those moments where functioning or flailing might actually be the healthy and the right response for me how do I know that and how do I navigate those moments as well mm-hmm. And that idea of the nuances of both joy being a choice, but also it's oftentimes the hardest choice somebody ever makes to continue to press forward, even when things are hard and you're kind of in, like you're saying, that flailing space. Like I, that's that's the interesting part. And I, and I think that may lead us into the other thing that I really want to talk to you about, which is grit. Mm-hmm. But there's something in there that I think joy oftentimes gets dismissed as being naive or simplistic or Pollyanna-ish. But I, I'm imagining probably positive psychology often gets that kind of a rap as well. It's like, well, you people are all just up all the time or whatever. Like, and that's, that's kind of what I'm, I'm encouraging is that, no, it's a, it is a choice. And to go after joy means that we are also acknowledging that there's going to be days that are hard and that we can hold space for both the negative and whatever we're trying to bring into our life. I'd use manifest, but I also think that's also a very loaded term because somehow I think... But it almost feels like when people are talking about manifesting it, it is again as if something is magically becoming yeah. a reality. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I so agree. And I, th- I think there are two parts to this. I think what, one of the things that really helped me is understanding what joy does neurologically to our brains yeah. and therefore why we should value it. And I teach this a lot in workplaces because, you know, my experience, leaders have no idea about the importance of joy at work and we don't often either. So um, Professor Barbara Fredrickson at the University of North Carolina's research, along with many others, but, but her work in particular, 
particular, I think, summarizes this beautifully. And what she's found is that when we experience heartfelt, so genuine, not the fake it till you make it stuff, but heartfelt positive emotions like joy, awe, interest, pride, amusement, love, for example, it changes neurologically the way our brains are working. So one of the things it does is it broadens our field of peripheral, peripheral vision. So we can take in about 75% of what's going on versus 15% when we're in a neutral or negative mood. So we see more opportunities. We see more of what's happening for people. We see more ways to connect, more ways to be creative. The other thing that happens is when we experience joy, it floods our brains with the feel-good chemicals of dopamine and serotonin. And what we find in the research is that these are really important when it comes to uh, being creative, thinking outside the box, being more innovative, even helping at times with complex problem solving and analysis, for example. And the final thing that happens neurologically is because positive emotions like joy make our brains feel safe, we think more in terms of we. So we're better at collaborating and co-creating, connecting with others, rather than thinking so much about me when we're experiencing some of those more negative emotions like fear or anxiety, where we're really in for sort of survival of ourselves. So joy is a really valuable and important emotion for us to experience. And when I was going through that um, period with my dad after he passed away, and you know I was watching the eating, moving, sleeping kind of parts. But the other thing I was doing was sprinkling in jolts of joy <laughs> to my day. So you know some of Barbara's research suggests we don't want to be all heartfelt positive emotion and no heart straining negative. We want the and. And she suggests we think about this like levity and gravity. You know, too much positive emotion just like too much levity, and we'd be floating away to la la land, disconnected from the reality of our world. But too much negative emotion just like too much gravity leaves us quite literally flat on the floor and unable to get up. Is why when we have depression, for example, we often struggle to even get out of bed. But when the two work together, when we have the right balance of heartfelt positivity and heart straining negativity, we get this beautiful way to move through the world. And so because I knew through that grieving experience that my my heart straining negativity was much higher than it might usually be, I was intentionally finding little jolts of joy, be they listening to a favorite song or making sure I was getting out in nature. You know, things that are green and blue for us are really great when it comes for heartfelt positive emotions making sure I was spending time with good friends where I wasn't talking about the grieving process but just other things that would light me up. So putting in those um, moments, those jolts of joy was a really important part of self-care and I think this is true for all of us. Um, and again, we often underestimate why those jolts of joy are so important and so when we get busy with life, it's easy to miss those moments. So don't skimp on the uh, jolts of joy or the heartfelt positivity moments in your day. Barbara has a great tool at uh, positivityratio.com and it's a free two-minute survey and you can take it at the end of your day and kind of see how much heart straining negativity have I had, how, how much heartfelt uh, positivity has I, have I had and what's creating them and so therefore what might I do differently tomorrow and she recommends you kind of measure that for two weeks and just see on your best days where's your ratio sitting, what's creating those moments for you. But you also asked about grit and so just quickly to add into that, um, grit can absolutely be part of the joy. So grit is our passion and perseverance for long-term goals. It's that really sticking with the things that matter most to us. And Professor Angela Duckworth has a wonderful book on the bestseller list at the moment called Grit, that if you're interested in this, I would highly recommend. Um, she breaks grit down into those two components. So there's passion, which is what we talked about earlier, that interest and that sense of purpose. But there's also perseverance. And the perseverance is really, number one, practice. And so two forms of practice she identifies. One is deliberate practice, uh, building those skills that are important towards that goal and deliberate practice is very effortful. Um, I think perhaps at times there's not a lot of joy in it, depends how learning or 
orientated you are because you're intentionally stretching yourself outside your comfort zone, really focusing and going hard at building that skill and then getting some immediate feedback and quite often negative feedback about where it didn't work so you can go at it again the next time and try and improve it. But the other form of practice she identified as important for grit is that state of flow and flow is effortless practice <laughs> and so flow are those moments where we are in the zone, we're one with the music, it's all coming together. And then in addition to the practicing in order to persevere with our goals so we climb that mastery curve and get better at it, the other thing she identifies is hope and hope being that ability to fall down seven times and stand up eight. Now again, I'm not sure at times how joyful that is. It might depend how much pride you take in the falling down part, um, but um, really practicing the work here of Professor Carol Dweck around having a growth mindset so that, again, instead of seeing the falling down as the failure, seeing falling down as the learning opportunity. I often think of Thomas Edison in his famous quote, I didn't fail, I just found 10,000 ways the light bulb didn't work. And so whenever I find myself falling down after my latest failure, I think, it's like, hey, I'm not up to 10,000 yet, my light bulb could be right around the corner. <laughs> so there is perhaps some joy in both that practice piece, uh, there's some joy in the knowing that you can stand back up and you can keep making progress towards the things that matter most to you. I think there's absolutely joy in feeling like you're making progress towards the things things you're passionate about and the impact that you want to have for yourself and others in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's also, I mean, that thing where when people are starting to work on something new, the joy feels like that or we mistake it for, or we're addicted to, I'm not sure which it is, but like when we get in the zone, because that place, that state of flow is always so attractive and it does, it feels amazing when you hit on to that thing. But I love that there's those other two components that you're talking about, both of you're going to fall down and then getting back up, sticking to it and the passion and all of that, like that there's other components to grit and growing and all of that. I love that you're bringing that up. What do you think is most people's reaction when they kind of, I don't know, when they see that crossroads of grit and joy? Yeah, I think um, I think for again for many of us, just understanding how our brains work um, is a big relief. You know, it takes a lot of the pressure off to go. Okay, you know, I, you know, I think often, particularly when we're um, very heart centered in the kind of work that we're doing. You know, we set out to create these beautiful businesses or to do this beautiful work in the world or to have this beautiful impact in the communities that we want to serve, and we kind of assume that because we're following our heart, everything will come together. Everything will go to plan everything will be joyful as we do it because we're following our passion and that's always the advice that we're given and so I think it's often a bit of a rude shock to many of us as we get a little into that journey and go yeah that didn't quite work the way I wanted or that's much harder and challenging me in ways that I hadn't expected and we're just not prepared for that and when we don't know that actually that is completely to be expected that is completely normal if that's what you're aiming for then you know we, we are too hard on ourselves as we have those moments and it can strip the joy uh, from being able to do that so you know I think some permission here again is really important understanding what's happening and why and then it allows I find certainly for me and many of the people I coach is that in those moments of flow when you're in that joy space relish it like savor it bask in it you know wallow around in it you know really just capitalize on that let yourself be in that space but when you're not but you're still pursuing that passion that you you know want to fulfill and it's not quite coming together in that joyful moment know that there's nothing wrong with you there's nothing wrong with it this is just your inner learning space now and what Angela talks about is actually you know while deliberate practice for you or I might not found that found that joyful actually for many people like elite athletes 
who do a lot of that or um, musicians or that, it does become joyful over time because they know they're getting better. Even though it's really effortful in the moment, they know that this is a process to getting better. And so the more they figure it out, the more joyful that can be. Um, even the falling down and the sta- having to stand back up, you know, you know, I've learned to celebrate my failures because my brain was so wired to only celebrate success that I started to realize I was scared of failing because I didn't get that surge of that feel-good chemical dopamine when I failed. And I knew I had to turn that around. I had to get as happy about failing because it meant I had figured out something that didn't work, which also meant I was maybe a step closer to figuring out what did work, if we think of Thomas Edison. Um, and so now when I'm in the middle of a good failure, you know, I'll often do the victory salute or pump the fist in the air and go, you failed, well done, you got out of your comfort zone, you tried something that didn't work, awesome, what can we learn from this and how do we get back in it? So to where you were speaking before about joy being a choice, you know, I think through this intersection of grit and joy, we can make this process more joyful for us by recognising that this is part of learning and getting better at things and following our dreams and realising the things that matter most to us. Yes, I love that. And it totally, I was gritting ear to ear because I was thinking of, uh, I did improv for a while. And one of the things, one of the group games that we did is, I mean, when you're putting that much trust in just putting yourself out there constantly, (laughs) there's Mm -hmm. inevitably that moment where somebody just says something awkward or something that just falls flat. And so as a group, we would all stand up, start clapping. The person would take a bow and you go, I failed. And then we would just move on. And I love that. I mean, what I'm learning there is that, like, there's a science. Like, I didn't know why that was awesome until just now. But, like, I mean, one of the reasons is that it was probably rewiring us to, to be okay and feel safe enough to take that chance and fail with each other because it wasn't being looked down upon. It was something we were actually going to what approve of in each other and even celebrate. So I think that's, I love that there's the two sides of that now. Absolutely, because when you're doing that celebration, again, you're charging your brain with dopamine. You know, mm-hmm. that dopamine reactor is not very intelligent, <laughs> and anything you get excited about triggers up that dopamine. And so when we associate, you know, failure with actually being a positive experience for us, then it takes so much of that pain out. It takes so much of those, you know, stories of self-criticism about not being good enough, not being worthy. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so ashamed. And because those are the things that rob us of dopamine and serotonin. Again, it's not to say that one is better than the other it's just understanding that they do different things mm-hmm. and so if that self-criticism you know often we think that oh well that'll motivate me to push through and get better and yeah it can in the short term but we see from the research that over time it actually inhibits your approach system to life um, so you know you start to protect yourself more you start to lean away from things whereas when we can get used to failure to celebrate it as part of the learning process to let, not let negativity or um, criticism you know kind of wound us in our hearts when we see that, okay, this is a chance for me to learn and get better, it becomes much easier to embrace those moments and then the, the failures aren't quite as painful for us. Yeah, I love that. So is there are there other simple ways that you've worked with clients to kind of, I don't know, to celebrate failure? Um, I mean, anything that's just that stands out in your mind that's come up as you've done that work that maybe somebody listening could take away as well? 
Absolutely. And again, I'm going to refer to the work of Professor Carol Dweck at Stanford, who, I, you know, I think just does such fascinating research in this area. And she's found a couple of things. Um, one is recognising that our brains are actually wired to learn and grow throughout our lives. Now, that sounds obvious, but a decade ago, we thought that wasn't the case. We thought once you got to your late teenage years, that was really it. You had what you had for your brain and that was your lot in life. So, you know, recognise your brain is wired for growth. Um, and actually, one of the things that Carol does working with kids in schools, and she has a beautiful TEDx talk on this, is teach them to say, I can't do that yet. So rather than, I can't do that, I'm no good at maths, um, you know, I couldn't get up and publicly speak, just adding that word yet on the end is a great way to recognise that you can't do it yet. But you know what? If you put practice and effort into that, you would get better than where you are today. And it may not ever mean that, you know, you're a world-class stage speaker, but you could get better than where you are today. And if this is important to you, then here are the processes for doing it. So just that word yet, whenever we're describing what we can or can't do, I think is a really powerful way to just help soften our brains from beating us up quite so much. Um, the second thing that she recommends is just recognising our brains are sense-making machines and we love it when all the pieces of our world fit together and as a result, we're constantly creating stories about why something is happening and what will happen next. And particularly in moments of stress or failure, we often grab the worst-case scenario for those stories, like I'm such a failure, I'm such an idiot, I'm no good at anything, um, and we hook onto them as though they're absolute truth, not realising that they shape the way we think, feel and act. And so when you're in the grip of a story that that's spiralling you down towards negativity, overwhelm, feelings of helplessness and despair, just learning to pause and go, okay, this is one interpretation of what's happened, but was there anything I missed? I grabbed this kind of thin slice of reality. Is it true? is the question I often use with clients. Is that story true? Is it the only explanation for what's unfolding? Or was there anything maybe that you missed? And the goal is not to have make-believe stories here, but to look for equally plausible explanations. Because usually there is more than one explanation for what might have happened. And each of those stories, as we tune into them, will help us to think, feel, and act in different ways. And so then choosing the story that serves us best in that moment, at least until we have more information, um, can often be a really great way to get us back on our feet, to put a bit more joy and hope back in there. And the last one is just being aware of how you praise yourself and others. So Carol's research has found that often when we praise ourselves or we praise other people as well, we'll say something like, oh, good job, or well done, or you're so good at that, or you make that look so easy. And we love those moments of praise, you know, they often make us feel like we've grown 10 feet, but what they tend to do over time is actually undermine our confidence because we don't know why it worked. So when we say to ourselves or someone else, oh, awesome job, or you're so good at that, um, it doesn't help us figure out, well, what worked about that and how could I do that again next time to get an even better result or to get the same result? So trying to give effort-based praise is what Carol's recommending to say, hey, good job at that. I really love the way you thought about the questions you asked today and you helped Michelle have a much richer conversation with our listening audience. Then you know, okay, when I ask really good questions, I'm really present there in the moment with someone I'm interviewing, that works. So next time I can do that again. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, totally makes sense. Um, so there are three little ways, but not yet challenging the story. Is it true when those stories of failure kind of robbing us with confidence and grit and joy? And then just when you do praise, really try and make it effort-based praise, be that just in your own head or be it praise you're giving to somebody else. Yeah, I love that. And I do love the question of is it true? It feels like kind of a hat tip to Byron Katie of like... Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
<laughs> is it true? And even if the answer is uh, yes or no, you can still even dig further with if, is it really true? Because yep. yeah, sometimes we're so married to the story itself. It's really hard to see beyond what it's meant. Um, and I love that you're bringing up those emotional pieces of we get so tied to like the negative tailspin of it. that Of course, this person is trying to be awful and mean to me. And that's what this meant. But yeah, you can't. You can't deny the answer of, is it true? <laughs> you really it's it's it. a really hard one when you sit with it. And again, I think it's important to understand that your brain has millions of bits of information coming mm-hmm. at it every day, and it's only p- capable of processing a very small part of those. So normally when you've you know created a story, you've grabbed a really thin slice of reality and you've missed other important bits. And I think that pausing and asking, is it true, just gives your brain a chance to go, all right, well, what else might I have missed in this? And again, it's not to be making things up. So I don't think this is positive thinking just for the sake of it. I'm going to deny that reality. I'm just going to think positively and rub the magic sticks and hopefully it'll be a different way. Um, This is genuinely looking for equally believable explanations because if you don't really believe it, I don't think you really leave those fears behind. Mm, Yeah, that's powerful too. Yeah, thank you. I think that's super helpful and a a great, you know, three steps for if you're kind of stuck there to, to, to find your way back out or to to make practices that are a little bit more healthy for the future too. What else do you think surprises people about the work that you do or the impact that it has? One of the pieces I love teaching that I think we completely underestimate is the power of using our strengths, the things we're good at and actually enjoy doing more in our work. And intuitively we get that. We go, oh yeah, that makes complete sense. And actually we've seen over the last decade that, you know, 10 years ago, if you ask people, you know, will you, will your career do better if you focus on fixing your weaknesses or developing your strengths? Overwhelmingly, the majority of people said, I've got to fix my weaknesses. But when uh, we've asked in the last few years, that has flipped completely and people now understand that building on their strengths, building on the way their brain is wired to perform at their best uh, is likely to deliver much better outcomes for them when it comes to their work and to their life as well. And yet if you ask most people, tell me what your top five strengths are, most of us struggle to name two or three of the things that we're really good at and enjoy doing. Uh, So one of the other free tools I love is the VIA survey and people can find it at viacharacter.org. It's a 10 minute survey and it'll help you identify your strengths. And in particular, your character strengths. So these are often aligned to values that you hold, uh, things like curiosity, kindness, love, creativity, and they're the how you like to go about your work and your life, the experiences that you like to be creating around you. Now, one of the things, again, it's a bit like the joy and the positive uh, thought stuff. You know, people often think, well, I'm going to be strength focused now. What does that mean for my weaknesses? Am I ignoring those things? Or, you know, what happens? And we often underestimate the importance of understanding that while sometimes we use our strengths really well. It's the right strength and the right amount for the right outcome. Often what's happening during our day is that we are underplaying our strengths. So I know whenever I'm procrastinating, putting something off, lacking in confidence about something, it's normally because there's a strength I'm underplaying. And if I dialed that strength up in that moment, I could lean more into whatever that activity is. It would become more joyful for me. But we also at times overplay our strengths. And most of us have a story about where our strengths have gotten us into trouble and, you 
in workshops, you know, people with the strength of honesty will always tell me they've given someone feedback that's far too blunt. <laughs> or people with the strength of humour have made the joke at the wrong time. Or people with the strength of kindness or love feel like they're giving and giving and giving to everybody else until there's nothing left for them. So when we feel perhaps on the verge of burning ourselves out or we feel like we're doing our very best in a situation but nobody else seems that grateful or appreciative of what we're doing, in fact, perhaps they're complaining about it, <laughs> um, you know, or we're getting feedback about our weaknesses. So often I find if you scratch the surface of most of the weaknesses you see, they are often strengths being overplayed. It's a really quick example for three years in a row at PricewaterhouseCoopers, three different bosses, I had the same feedback and it was, you're doing a great job, but could you just slow down a little bit? And I was like, slow down, everyone else needs to speed up, what's wrong with them? <laughs> now, I wasn't extrinsically motivated to change this because the good job bit was still getting me promoted. I wasn't intrinsically motivated to change it because being full of energy feels like me at my best. And I wasn't that confident, to be honest, about what slowing down would look like. I worried like riding a bike too slowly, I might fall off and not get any of the good job part done anymore. So I did what most of us do. I put it in the too hard basket and realized if it became a career stop, I was going to have to take it out and do something about it. But the first time I took that survey, my number one strength was zest, which is energy and vitality. And it was this real aha moment about going, ah, oh, this feedback is just at times I'm overplaying the strength of zest and I get excited about a project, charge off at 100 miles an hour only to realize I've left half my team back at the starting line. Now, the idea that in some situations I need to dial down my strength of zest or with some people who aren't as zesty where I might be overwhelming them to dial it back was completely manageable. I don't want to put people off with my zest because it's something I value and is important to me. And I know my zest pretty well. So, you know, I'm aware when I'm being very zesty and I'm aware what it might look like if I just dialed it back a couple of notches. So in my experience, a lot of our weakness feedback is often strengths that we are overplaying. Um, and then when we look at it through that lens, it becomes much easier to make those adjustments. And then, of course, every now and then there is a genuine weakness. And by all means, if you need to go at it, do it head on. But just be realistic. You are rewiring the neural pathways in your brain when you fix a weakness. And generally, that takes time and effort and commitment and quite a bit of practice. So just make sure you've got the right support around you if you're going to go at a weakness head on. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, because there's also that, that there's a piece of it that indicates that the person does have some control. But it's also something that if once you recognize it, it's an intrinsic part of you. And so really, it's just the dial of like where to play it and how how loud or soft to make that that trade or aspect of yourself. Yeah. Mm, that's good. Yeah, I think that does get missed a lot. That's that's uh, it's a new angle. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And is there, um, bef before we get to the last couple of questions, thank you so much for being on the show. Like, this has been awesome. I've been writing notes quite furiously down. So thank you. <laughs> My absolute pleasure. <laughs> I love your zest. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, is there anything else that you're working on that you want to share with the audience and that you feel like would be um, of interest to them? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things we find as people try to flourish more or more consistently have joy in their life is that it helps to have a bit of a roadmap. And Professor Martin Seligman, uh, who I mentioned as the founder of the field of positive psychology, suggests that in order to flourish, we need to have the right balance of heartfelt positive emotions, as we've talked about. We need to feel regularly engaged in what we're doing, so to use those strengths we've just touched on. We need to have good relationships more than anything else when it comes to our well-being. What the science has found is that other people matter. Um, we need to have a sense of meaning 
meaning and purpose. We've touched on that with some of the grit work. And we need to feel like we can accomplish the things that matter most to us. And we've touched on that a bit with the growth mindset and some of that grit perseverance piece as well. So what we did was work with some researchers and we created a free tool called the PERMA Workplace Survey. And you can get it at PERMA with a H-P-E-R-M-A-H survey.com. And it takes just about two minutes. It's going to give you some uh, indicators about where are you in each of those pillars currently. Um, help you set a little uh, well-being or flourishing goal for the next month or two months or three months in one of those pillars. And then give you access to a database with more than 200 different evidence-based positive psychology interventions that you can play with. So it's a little bit like a psychological Fitbit. It'll remind you to come back in at whatever time you've set your goal to see how you've done and what impact it had and set the next goal as you keep going. So I think this is a great tool to give people a very practical roadmap and um, help you measure and kind of see where you are so you can make informed choices about which of these pillars do you want to invest a bit more energy and focus in and to give you very tested, practical, small ways that you can start to play with your sense of joy and well-being and see what impact it has for you. That is awesome. Thank you. Yeah, and I will link up to that in the show notes as well. Um, I'm going to have to go take that myself. <laughs> so very <laughs> <Right>. exciting. <laughs> well, cool. Thank you, Michelle. I, I have two last questions that um, I ask everybody. So what the first one being, what does balance look like for you and how do you maintain harmony in your life? Such a good. I mean, balance for me looks like that consistently flourishing. I know when I'm not in that state where I feel like I'm um, functioning or I'm striving or driving more than flourishing, I know I'm out of balance. And for me, I generally come back to those five pillars and go, okay, which of these am I over-investing in at the moment? Is it the accomplishment or is it the engagement or have I got too much meaning? You can have too much of any of these well-being pillars, uh, for example. And, you know, meaning for me is a big one because I get a lot of meaning from my work but some of the research suggests that when it comes to meaning we can have a harmonious passion that feels like it's in balance and we've got time in our life for other things and people as well or we can have an obsessive passion where all we really do is think about the difference we want to make with that sense of purpose and spend all of our hours doing that and rob our relationships and well-being as a result so you know for me I use those pillars when I'm not quite in balance to really think about well where have I over invested or where have I under invested and what's the little shift I might want to make you know I do a play a lot with habits so I'm a big fan of just like 10 minutes a day to start to shift some of these things so I don't get stuck in the excuses that I'm too busy to move this on so um, I think self-awareness of where I'm at in terms of my flourishing and then self-care um, in the little things I might do to adjust it are really important for me awesome yes thank you um, and last and most joyfully what are three ways that you can think of to jumpstart joy in your life in the world or in other people's lives. Yeah, so we've touched on lots throughout the show. I mean, I think a big one for me personally is getting out into nature. Um, I'm lucky I live a couple of minutes walk away from a beach and most mornings dog and I are down along there. And for me, seeing the horizon uh, is a big one. But the research, again, supports that things that are green and blue and natural for us are really good for our joy. So, you know, get outside, uh, get a bit of nature for you, get some for other people uh, is a really important one. Um, using your strengths. So we touched on that as well. You know, a good day for me is where I get to start and do something I'm actually good at and enjoy doing. And it creates this ripple of joy then throughout my day. And again, even just 10 minutes of this, I find, can make a massive difference. So, you know, little ways to start the day. And then thirdly, investing in my relationships. I'm a natural introvert, so I spent a lot of my life thinking I could survive as an island. Uh, and to realise, of course, that's not actually true. So making the time to invest in our relationships, having good people around us, having like-minded tribes, really important for our joy 
awesome. Yes. Thank you so much. I, um, I really love that you spoke into just there, the invest in relationships, even as an introvert. I mean, I'm an extrovert, but um, it's interesting that that particular thing hasn't come up before because um, I, I had, and I hadn't actually thought of the fact that community and reaching out as an introvert would be a very difficult thing at times. So that's, yeah, that's a new angle. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> thank you. Um, but thank you so much. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Michelle, thank you so much for being on the show. It was just wonderful to get to speak with you. And I really appreciate your time and all of, all of the energy and wisdom that you shared with us. To get all of the links or to find out more about Michelle, head on over to the website at jumpstartyourjoy.com slash episode 58. You'll get the show notes there. You could also grab the downloadable version of my own notes because I know we moved fast and there were so many awesome things covered in everything we discussed. There's also the full list of books that Michelle shared and the links to her site over in the show notes. So jumpstartyourjoy.com slash episode 58. And if you're wanting to start a podcast and have your first episode live, live and up in iTunes before the end of the year, don't forget to head over to jumpstartyourpodcast.com and enter the code JUMPSTART, all capitals, to get $20 off just this week. You'll have to get there before the cart closes. The class materials are available now, and the calls start this week. And I just can't wait to see you guys there. I, I hope that you will join. Next week on the podcast, in episode 59, I'll be talking to Russell Hurst. He is the owner of the Instagram account, Star Wars in the Yard, which is just delightful if you have not seen it yet. So if you haven't seen it yet, it's just a really delightful account. It's all based around Star Wars and the stories that go along with the characters there. We'll talk about that, that Instagram account about Star Wars and his career in television because that account is something that he's just doing on the side. So I will see you guys next week. And until then, I hope that your days are filled with so much joy.